Welcome to episode 10 of the Daniel House Book Club, where we're working our way through the eight books every interiors lover should have read according to Architectural Digest. We're in our fourth of six episodes dedicated to Elsie DeWolf's The House in Good Taste. And let me tell you, I'm feeling the burn. This book is so similar to the last one we read that I'm starting to be like, yeah, I've heard that, and I've heard that, and I know what you're going to say here. Thank gosh we had our member Heather Martin of Metahome as a guest last week or I'd be fast asleep. I'm just kidding, but be sure to go listen to that episode if you haven't, as she was fascinating. And I'm excited to announce that for our final episode covering this book, we'll be joined by one of our industry's most interesting people, Susanna Salk. For those of you who may be unfamiliar, Susanna is the author of numerous design books with titles including Be Your Own Decorator and Dogs and Their Designers. She is also the host of Quintessence's At Home With series where she visits the homes of some of the world's most influential designers. I watch it on YouTube regularly and drool over the amazing places she goes. Our episode with Susanna will come out on December 13th, so be sure to listen. To keep things interesting in the meantime, I want to start Elsie's two chapters on the drawing room and the living room off with the results of a survey I took amongst our Daniel House Club designer members a few of our vendors, and those present at my Thanksgiving dinner where the turkey I prepared was adequate. I posed the following three questions to everyone I surveyed. Number one, describe your ideal living room. Number two, do you know the historical difference between a drawing room and a living room? And number three, could you describe the key differences between our contemporary idea of the living room and the family room? The last question obviously took for granted that people I spoke with actually used those designations and not something like den or great room or media room. At Daniel House Club, we are always working to bring our interior designer members the very best the industry has to offer. That's why we are so pleased to carry a beautiful array of rugs from Rug and Colleen. For over 40 years, Rug and Colleen, with its vast archive of vintage and antique Killeen rugs, along with its unmatched ability to create totally new custom pieces of heirloom quality, has been a staple for designers everywhere. Rug and Colleen's New York showroom holds the largest international assortment of Colleen rugs. Drawing on instincts and a wealth of experience, their team hand selects and oversees each piece in its collection. Their custom pieces employ a variety of weaving techniques and exotic yarns. From the latest contemporary to the most storied antique, every piece is selected for rarity, cultural significance, and lasting beauty. More than storytellers or historians, Rug and Colleen is a team of artists dedicated to providing the very best from antique to modern and everything in between. And now their beautiful pieces can easily be added to your or your client's shopping cart and delivered to your project with ease. In an era of some of the longest lead times ever experienced, Rug and Kaleem's antique and vintage pieces ship immediately. Shop DanielHouse.club today and buy a piece of history for yourself or your clients. Let's start with what some of our non-designers had to say about their ideal living rooms. Caleb, in customer service here at Daniel House, said his ideal living room is open and flexible, so it can be intimate but can also expand to host a more cocktail type hangout and that it must have an open fireplace. My cousin Katie said her ideal living room is warm and comfortable, and it would be nice if it looked good too. A member of our marketing team said her ideal living room is one that is cozy and inspires conversation by having seating positioned so people can see one another. Ideally, it would have art and objects that are personal and encourage further discussion. 
My Aunt Bev agreed that furniture should be arranged in ways so that people can see one another, adding a formal but welcoming atmosphere is best. My mom emphasized a need for adjustable lighting, a big area rug for warmth, and settings for multiple types of activities. Rachel, the assistant at the Northwest Society of Interior Designers, had perhaps the most precise vision for her living room. Low, deep seating, tons of lamps with no overhead lights, Instead, Moroccan lights will reflect on her walls. Giant patterned rugs and a huge table made to enjoy food and wine will complete the ambiance. I can't wait to be invited once she's made her dream a reality. Amongst the non-designers, an open fire was pretty universally insisted upon. No one made any comment about what the actual style of the room itself should be. Now let's take a look at what our designers had to say about an ideal living room. Tom said a living room needs a fireplace, lots of windows, and he likes a modern aesthetic. Barbara said a good living room needs multiple gathering or seating areas, large windows, ideally with a view, and custom curtains that add warmth. She needs a fireplace too, and prefers light tones on the walls and furniture, complemented by amazing artwork. A custom wool rug would be very nice, and every chair needs to be accompanied by a little table. Ambient lighting is a must, and so are some fresh flowers. Finally, Deanna says when she's planning her client's ideal living room, it has to feel like home to them. It needs to function and be comfortable before it looks good. It's a place to relax and entertain, and it needs to serve that purpose first. Deanna typically aims for a neutral palette. I think these are all great responses on behalf of our designer members, and I'm offering a special thanks to each one of them who picked up the phone the day before Thanksgiving to give me their two cents. I hope you all had the happiest of meals together with your families. Almost no one knew the distinction between a living room and a drawing room. I got a lot of responses like, the drawing room? Well, I'm pretty sure no one's drawing in there. And that's something I've read about in really old books. Some people took a real stab at what the drawing room was, identifying it as a room that was probably smaller than the living room, maybe sort of like a library, and possibly just for men. Only one person, a designer said the drawing room is the place where you meet and gather more formally with guests. That response fits Elsie's description, and it also pretty nearly mirrors most people's contemporary understanding of the living room. Even though people describe their ideal living room as comfy and warm, when asked to define the key differences between the living room and the family room, they invariably said the living room was more formal, a place to visit with guests who are not a part of the family a place free of toys and mostly free of TVs and of clutter. Those things belong to the family room, which hopefully is adjacent to the kitchen and which many people identified as the place where everyone goes on game day. I think it's interesting to note that of the 10 people I interviewed, three mentioned they also retreated to their living room for some peace and quiet, identifying it as the calmest place in their house. Though they had opposing views, two mentioned the importance of ceiling height in this room over others. One wanted a low ceiling over a portion of their ideal living room, allowing an open upper loft for reading, and then a much taller portion with a huge stone fireplace for everyone to gather around. The other just felt the ceiling needed to be high enough to accommodate the biggest Christmas tree imaginable. The last two were not designers, but clearly people who had very distinct pictures in their mind's eye. I always think it's sort of fun to listen to designers describe an interior and then listen to a regular civilian describe it. On all sorts of other topics, designers are often pegged as dreamy and very visual. When you, when you ask them about a room, though, they tend to get right down to brass tacks. The sofa is eight feet long with track arms, an eight by eight foot piece of brooding art will go over there, and so on, they might say. Meanwhile, the regular person is just thinking about watching their kids and grandkids unwrap presents under the tree. And in this disparate approach, I think, 
lies the gap not between a good designer and a great designer, but between a great designer and a very successful one. The great designer knows all the specific attributes a room should have to make watching the kids unwrap presents under the Christmas tree or any other activity you want to accommodate as comfortable and memorable as possible. Like a great computer programmer, though, they might start to spew information at their client, who just wants it all to feel wonderful. When you hire the architect Renzo Piano, I am told he begins by saying, We are about to go on a beautiful journey together. I have no idea how true this is, but the point is, he's not talking to you about the placement of a wall or a column or a window, but how you will feel along the way, and finally, how you will feel when the place is all finished. And Elsie does that all the way through this book. She gives you a few specific details, and then tells you how gay and happy and charming it will all be if you follow her direction. It's infectious because it satisfies the vision people have for themselves. With long lead times continuing to affect designers everywhere, we've implemented a bi-weekly in-stock email. Join danielhouse.club and receive regular updates about our tens of thousands of products that are ready to ship immediately. Your clients rely on you to deliver on time. Let Daniel House Club help you surpass their expectations. Now, back to the show. Keeping in mind that her 20th century drawing room is our 21st century living room, and her living room is more like our family room, let's hear about Elsie's ideal now. For her, the ideal drawing room contains many comfortable chairs and sofas, many softly shaded lights, plenty of sunshine, well-balanced mirrors set in simple paneled walls, any number of small tables that move around, and good, a good writing desk, and an open fire. Uh, if you remember our survey, I would say it seems like not much has changed in 107 years. We got just about every single one of those attributes from our 10 interviewees, except for one, which we'll return to shortly. But first, a few more things we've already heard from our contemporaries. Elsie's ideal drawing room is a place for what she calls the elegancies of life. So it shouldn't be littered up with personal things like work baskets for knitting projects or magazines. Even if it is big, it should always feel intimate. And if it is big, it should contain a dozen conversation centers. By conversation centers, I think she means any place where two or more people can talk closely with one another. We didn't get exactly this in my survey, though many felt the room should facilitate multiple activities and be able to expand and contract on a whim. Elsie also says that no chair should be isolated. If it is, inevitably some shy person will go sit in it awkwardly. She says this is a missed opportunity for that person to have become animated by a better position amongst strangers. Everyone wants to be part of the action, but may be timid. Don't create a situation where their natural inclination will force them into social discomfort. I think this is more specific, very smart advice than we heard from others surveyed, but not really markedly different. The need for the living room to accommodate multiple activities was hit on by almost everyone I talked to as well, but again, not as specifically as Elsie addressed it. Her ideal drawing room includes a great writing desk that is not for family members, but is to be used by guests in what she calls social emergencies. That's a hilarious phrase that I plan to start using as often as possible, but I've definitely been in the shoes of the guest she's thinking of, not needing a pen and paper as her friends would have, but some good Wi-Fi and a place to plug a computer charger and respond to a quick email on something bigger than my phone. And great hosts have been able to provide for that effortlessly. It doesn't take much, but it really makes you feel cared for. On the idea of personal objects and toys or whatever, which several people touched on, Elsie does say that the moment an object becomes useful, it finds its place in a room. 
So like a special jar or vase displayed empty draws the eye in a distracting way, but filled with flowers, it becomes great ambiance. Only one person I talked to mentioned the background of their ideal living room, declaring a need for wood paneled walls to make it feel cozy. This is what I said we'd come back to because one in 10 is not a great average. For Elsie, you've got nothing if you don't have some backdrop for all this stuff. Her ideal room is balanced by a pair of mirrors set into a rhythm of painted plaster paneling on all the walls of the room. You might think of this like a rug of a room. It's weird to walk into a room and find a sea of furniture sitting on the bare floor, but a big rug makes it all hang together. And rooms are three-dimensional, so if this hanging together on the floor is important, imagine how important it is on the walls, which are actually at the level where your eyes are naturally directed all the time. A room really can't be complete without some consideration here, and not just for the room's sake, but for the sake of the people who occupy it. Does the background make the people who own the room look and feel their best? If the walls are considered to this extent and all the other elements are in place and the host is of lively spirit, then Elsie's ideal drawing room might rise to the level of a salon, which is a term she identifies as always having scared the American host. More than just a great room for entertaining, we have come to understand the idea of salon as a gathering of great diverse minds to chat about ideas and become friends. If you can create a room, no matter its pretense, that facilitates this, I think you might get a gold star from Elsie. Before answering, the most grandiose of the people I asked to describe their ideal living room said, just the one, or do I get like three or four living rooms? I limited him to just the one because Elsie says, like the earlier authors we studied did also, that if a house has only one room to gather in, it has to be considered as a living room, by which, again, she means our contemporary idea of a family room. Otherwise, where will anyone get together and feel at ease? So my question is, are Elsie's distinctions between these two rooms the same as our own? For her, the living room is the one you live in whether you're sick, sorry, or glad. It is a place you yearn for when you're gone too long. It might be a little shabby, though the better for it, like an old shoe that fits just right. It has comfy chairs, long, sprawling sofas, and a big open hearth. The stuff in this room is not notably different from the things listed in the drawing room, per se, but the adjectives that describe them are. There is order, but no formality in this room. Ideally, it has the flavor of the family's main hobby. If televised sports were a thing in her day, then I imagine Elsie'd have said it was a room for that, if that's what the family loved. If they love to do puzzles, or play games, or drink wine, then it should be about those things. Maybe it's filled with well-read books, but not with decorative books the inhabitants would never actually read. This room grows over years and years out of the user's needs. Elsie says in the event the house is tiny, then one big room for all activities is less suffocating than a bunch of tiny ones. Today we know this kind of house so well and we know that they can be some of the most fun or absolute worst places to be. She makes a suggestion that I hadn't thought of myself when dining and living all happen together. Don't do a full set of matching chairs. Find chairs that are similar, but not exactly the same. Make it so when you are not dining, there is no indication that the table and its area are anything other than a part of the living room. So really, she's furthering this idea that the living room should accommodate many activities and one of them may be dining. Even before the open kitchen was commonplace, as many of my interviewees pointed out when asked about the family room, Elsie was indicating how fun this connection could be. Well-scaled art can make a room, but it can break a budget. Enter the pictorialist. 
After his 13 years of experience owning a high-end retail business selling couture furnishings, Celadon Collection, the Pictura List founder and curator Roy Caro Cohen realized the design world lacked an alternative to uber-high-end art galleries. When conceiving a design, discerning clients might want originals for certain rooms, but the options to dress the remaining walls according to specific design directions were scarce. The Pictura List is a curated collection of artwork for interior designers. Roy now roams the world to select fine art for designed interiors. His intimate acquaintance with the tastes, needs, and sensibilities of designers, retailers, hoteliers, and the public enables him to say, I help people create spaces they want to work live and love it. Daniel House Club is pleased to offer a selection of over 300 of the Picturalist beautiful pieces. Check out Kaleidoscope View by Alejandro Francescini if you want to be totally mesmerized. At 54 inches high and 36 inches wide, it's sure to make an impact on any wall it graces. It's printed with archival ink on 100% cotton rag paper. Pieces ship out within 10 days of an order being placed. DanielHouse.club members can even pay in four interest-free installments using ShopPay. Visit DanielHouse.club today to start elevating your projects. Following the chapters on the living room and drawing room, Elsie has a chapter on the sitting room and the boudoir, and I'd refer you to the earlier episode covering these rooms as addressed in the decoration of houses, as there's not a lot of new information from Elsie, and this is already a room that we don't often encounter in our current work. I didn't ask any of my victims about their perfect dining room, which is weird since Thanksgiving weekend is basically the Super Bowl for dining rooms, so I took an abbreviated poll just for a pulse. People were a bit vaguer answering this question than they had been about their living room, except there was some consensus about the need for what one person humorously described as deliberately poor lighting, another just said dimly lit by a chandelier and aided by candlelight. What this indicates to me is there remains some sense of romance about dining around a table together, even if we tend to do it a little less frequently. People were divided on whether they would accept leaves in their table, but all wanted to be sure they could seat a large or small gathering easily. My mom said it was important that the room was large enough to pull the chair out and still walk around the back of it without feeling cramped, and again emphasized a need for dimmers on all the lights. In her dining room that she had when I was growing up, she had an, a sideboard built into an elliptical niche and a pair of angled china cabinets, which she also loved. And she liked that her dining room was right next to the kitchen, but not visible from it, and that nobody had to pass through the room to get to some other part of the house. Lastly, she liked that it had big west-facing windows, so the sunset was often visible at dinner time. Sunshine was one of Elsie's first prerequisites for a good dining room, too, along with a generally light atmosphere. And she favored storage built into the walls of the room, rather than having buffets covered with displays of silver, which she really did not like. She said displaying objects that announced their cost was something only a braggart would do. Apart from a lot of natural light and her inevitable use of mirrors, Elsie didn't write a ton about how the dining room should be lit, but in looking through the photos she's included, big chandeliers hanging over the table aren't really to be found. Instead, there are little sconces mounted on the walls, and candelabra and candlesticks with little shades. Interestingly, I see a lot more chandeliers hanging high over her drawing rooms. Again, Elsie indicates a need for the color of the room to make the host look their best. Especially in a dining room that doesn't have a lot of natural light, she often relied on color to make an impact. If there was a lot of light, dark or painted 
paneling was nice, with simply plastered beams overhead. She did also like dining rooms covered in mural papers, as long as they weren't too realistic. There are a few practical things about the dining room layout that Elsie preferred, including having openings to the room at the ends of a wall instead of in the center. This allowed her space for consoles and cupboards and opportunities to create symmetry through paneling around an open fire. She did not like the use of high back chairs because they made serving very clumsy. In other rooms, she worked to avoid much pairing of objects, but in the dining room, she'd pair all kinds of things. Porcelain jars, candlesticks, a pair of cupboards flanking the fire. There were some things she thought illogical to pair, like clocks, as only one is needed to tell the time. For her, there was something more precise about this room than some of the others in a house. And yet, to some extent, she found the furniture so predetermined that it could be a little difficult to shake things up and surprise people. In her own dining room, she aimed to keep it dignified, but make it a little unusual too. She pointed out that very often, even a new family had already inherited or selected their dining sets. Even today, I find about half the time a client already has a dining table that belonged to some relative and is important to them. Rather than use the entire set, Elsie might use the table and paint the chairs or find different chairs. She was a big advocate of painted furniture and had her own dining tabletop intricately painted with scenes of trees, urns, and balustrades. While she didn't like buffets with storage occupying floor space of the room, she she did love console tables, which could be used as part of the serving process, but did not really look specific to the act of dining. She noticed that these sorts of elegant tables could be found all over Europe, but Americans were reticent to forgo their buffets. On a final note about dining rooms, Elsie loved what she saw as a new trend, at least in the United States, of open-air dining rooms that could be enclosed by glass during the winter months. She loved how Europeans ate outside, and whenever possible, advocated for a sense of outdoors for mealtime. The last chapter we're covering here today is on bedrooms. I also failed to survey people on their ideal bedroom, but the stuff you need to have in this room doesn't vary much. For Elsie, the basic requirements are a comfortable bed and a small side table to hold a reading light, a clock, and a telephone. A chase lounge for resting is nice, and a long mirror somewhere to see yourself from head to toe, as well as a dressing table with proper lights. A writing table is a must, along with some chairs and stools. Wouldn't a writing table in every bedroom have been nice when the pandemic hit? Remember that desk down in the living room reserved for guests with social emergencies? You wouldn't have had to spend the last two years working at it while your kids ran around you if you'd also had one in your bedroom. Though I'll admit sleeping and working in the same room would probably fry my nerves. Anyway, this list of basics is a little longer than our current list, but not by much. As we've heard from others, Elsie prefers the suite of rooms to one very large room. The boudoir or sitting room, bedroom, dressing room, and bathroom are all connected to one another and accessible via an antechamber or vestibule that separates this grouping from the main hall of a house. In this room too, Elsie likes light colors, including gray, white, and cream, and prefers to reserve pattern and color for the curtains and the bed. In the old days, aka medieval times, she reminds us any furniture that wasn't portable was not really very important. The bed was just a crude wooden frame intended to be covered in expensive fabrics, usually all the way up to the ceiling, that could be removed and traveled with at a moment's notice. She reminds us of this really just to make another case for the use of chintz, pointing, pointing to the 1760s and the beginning of printed chintz production as the time when the bedroom began to evolve into something most in line with her current expectations of design and hygiene. She says sometimes patterns that do not have a super obvious repeat 
work nicely on the walls, but she really likes to use them for curtains because when they hang with ripples obscuring the repeat, they're never tiring to look at. For a similar reason, she advises against hanging a lot of small pictures on the walls of your bedroom. Some can be framed and sit on a table or desk, and if you need small pictures, you should group them so they don't make little dots all around the room and become distracting. And this concludes our summary of today's chapters. Join us next week as we discuss the dressing room and the bath, the small apartment, reproductions of antique furniture, and objects of art. If you'd like to read along, please visit danielhouse.club and click the Club Bulletin tab to find the blog post titled Club Bulletin Reading Schedule. While you're there, consider joining the club. It's a powerful tool that helps designers profitably procure great products for their projects. We'll see you next week. <laughs>